Well, the Lord declared in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Church, I tell you this morning on the authority of the word of God that Jesus Christ is the fountain of grace. He is the sustenance to which our souls long for. In fact, it's these truths that a number of men, as we uh, retreated this weekend, together, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, considered the supremacy of Christ and how he is the one to whom we owe all our allegiance and the one to whom will satisfy all of our soul's desires. And yet, if we are to have more and more of Christ, we must turn on the sin that resides within our hearts and our souls We must mortify it. We must kill it in order that we may have more of our Lord Jesus. And our brother, our guest today, Brian Hedges, came and beautifully and powerfully taught us that we fight against sin that we might have more of Christ. That we don't use Christ to fight against sin, but that the goal is Jesus. And I trust as Brian prepares to come and give us his message this morning, He once again will exalt our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might find our great delight in him. Brian is a pastor in southern Michigan. He is the husband of Holly, the father of four children, ages 15 to 5. And most importantly, he loves our Lord, and I trust God has equipped him today to speak to us. So will you welcome this morning, church, Brian Hedges, as he comes to lead us. Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you. It's been a wonderful weekend. I enjoyed spending time with uh, many of the men in your church, and I'm grateful to share the word with you this morning. If you don't mind, could we just bow together and pray one more time? Gracious Father, I'm reminded that with every step to the pulpit, C.H. Spurgeon said, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And this morning, we confess our dependence upon your spirit. We pray for your spirit to come and to attend your word. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Redeemer. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Every day, all day long, all of us are engaged in a conversation. We're engaged in a conversation with ourselves what we might call self-talk. There's always a running monologue going on in our heads. We do this all day long. We do this all the time. Older writers used to call this soliloquy. Soliloquy. Now, if you've ever heard that word, you probably heard it in the context of a Shakespearean play. You might think of Hamlet's soliloquy as he stares at the skull and he contemplates existence. To be or not to be, that is the question. To take a a slightly more contemporary example, you might think of that old film, The Sound of Music. Do you remember when Maria is on her way to meet the Von Trapp children for the first time and she's trying to pep herself up for this experience and she's singing, I have confidence in me, and she's just trying to bolster the confidence. It's an exercise in self-talk. Or you might think of the conflicted conversation that the creature Gollum has with himself in the film Lord of the Rings as he's contemplating good and evil, what choice will he make? 
And I would suggest that that's perhaps an even more biblical example than Maria's self-confidence. Gollum, at least, echoes the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 in the inner conflict within. Now, these pop cultural examples are rather dramatic, and everyday garden variety self-talk is not that dramatic, but it is no less powerful. We are, all of us, all day long, all the time, engaged in self-talk. Psychologists talk about this quite often. Christian psychologist named Eric Johnson says, humans are always engaging in self-talk that is typically habitual and serves to maintain current values and reflections. Therapy usually requires examining the ongoing conversations one is having with oneself. And that's what I would like for us to do this morning, to examine the ongoing conversations that we have with ourselves and to use scripture to help us do that. Another book says self-talk means, so here's a good definition, the words we tell ourselves in our thoughts. It means the words we tell ourselves about people, self, experiences, life in general, God, the future, the past, the present. It is specifically all the words you say to yourself all the time. When we talk to ourselves, we are telling ourselves things, either true things or false things. More specifically, we are commenting on and responding to our lives, our circumstances, other people in the world around us. We are interpreting all of this. We are assigning meaning. We are building an inner world, an inner world that perhaps corresponds to the reality of the true world, the world as God sees it, but sometimes perhaps not. We are reinforcing Beliefs, perspectives, attitudes, patterns of response, and we are doing so either for good or for evil. Moreover, we are becoming, to use C.S. Lewis's words, either everlasting splendors or everlasting horrors. We are developing a character by the way we talk to ourselves. Self-talk is something that's unavoidable. But we can control what we say to ourselves, how we talk to ourselves, and the Scripture is very helpful in this regard. And today I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that gives us a wonderful model of biblical self-talk, or what we might call sanctified self-talk. Not merely trying to pump up our self-confidence, but rather to teach our souls to attend to God. So turn with me in your Bibles to the 103rd Psalm. Psalm 103. This is a wonderful psalm. It's a psalm that Spurgeon said is almost an entire Bible unto itself. It has so much of the story of redemption, so much of the truth of who our God is and what he has done for us. This is a psalm from which many of our great hymns have come, such as Henry Light's Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, or the more contemporary song 10,000 Reasons by Matt Redman. So it's a psalm I'm sure is familiar to you. I'd like to read it in its entirety, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. In his righteousness, to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is God's word. Now the structure of this psalm Fairly simple. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist exhorts himself to bless the Lord. In verses 3 through 19, he recounts reasons for blessing the Lord. Essentially, he recounts God's benefits and he remembers God's character. Then in verse 20, he turns the call outward to angels, to mighty ones, his hosts, ministers, all of his works in all places of his dominion. He calls upon them to bless the Lord and then The last line of the psalm, he exhorts himself once again, bless the Lord, O my soul. So the entire psalm is framed by this exhortation to himself to bless the Lord. Now, of course, we can't consider every verse in detail this morning, but what I would like to do is simply ask three questions with you about sanctified self-talk. What is it? What is sanctified self-talk? The psalm will show us. And then secondly, how do you do it? What actually should we be saying to ourselves? And again, the psalm, I think, gives us very helpful instruction about how we should be talking to ourselves, how we should exhort ourselves. And then finally, a brief application question. How do we cultivate this discipline, the discipline of sanctified self-talk or the discipline of soliloquy? as the older writers liked to call it. So question number one, what is sanctified self-talk? Well, you see, first of all, in verse one, that it is the discipline of calling oneself to attend to God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Notice that he is addressing himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He is calling himself to do something. He's calling himself specifically to bless the Lord. To bless the Lord. Now, how is it that we bless the Lord? This word simply means to praise the Lord. God, when he 
blesses us, surveys our needs and responds to those needs with grace and with mercy and with provision. We, when we bless the Lord, we survey God's excellencies. We survey God's promises, all that God has done for us. And then we respond to him in praise and in blessing and in adoration. That's what it means to bless the Lord. And so three times in verse one, in verse two, in verse 22, the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He is calling himself to attend to God. So sanctified self-talk is this discipline of calling our souls to attend to God, his character and his blessings. It involves regathering our faculties, our thoughts, our inclinations and our affections and desires, regathering them and then refocusing them upon God. Notice that the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. All that is within me, not just a portion of my mind while my heart is going after other things. Not just part of my attention, but all of my attention. Now, some of you who are computer literates know that occasionally you have to run a, a maintenance program on your computer where you defrag the computer. You defragment the computer because data stored on a computer on a spinning disk gets scattered into all different kinds of places and it slows the computer down because the, the data on the computer is fragmented. And so you run a defragmentation maintenance program. Well, this discipline of soliloquy, of sanctified self-talk, is an exercise in spiritual defragmentation where we are calling to attention all of the various thoughts and desires and affections of our hearts. We're, get, we're regathering them. We're calling them back to focus upon God. A defragmentation of the soul. And it is a kind of self-talk that is specifically conscious of God. Now, the problem with many of us, probably most of us, if we're honest, is that so much of our self-talk is done without a consciousness of God. But the psalmist teaches us to speak to ourselves, Koram Deo, in the presence of God, before the face of God. Kyle Strobel has written a wonderful little book called Formed for the Glory of God. And it's a study of the spiritual disciplines of that New England Puritan, Jonathan Edwards. And in the book, he calls attention to Jonathan Edwards' practice of soliloquy. This is what Edwards himself called it. It was a form of prayer for Jonathan Edwards. And if you ever go and read a portion of Edwards' diary or his personal narrative, you'll see that he describes how he would spend hours and hours every day thinking of divine things, walking alone in the woods, in meditation, in soliloquy, in prayer, conversing with God. He says, I was almost constantly in prayer. Wherever I was, prayer seemed to be, seemed to be natural to me as the breath by which the inward burnings of my heart had vent. Now, of course, you hear a story like that and you think, well, of course, that's Jonathan Edwards. It's 300 years ago. Here's one of the greatest minds that... America has ever produced. He's one of the greatest theologians of all time. I'm no Edwards. I'll never be an Edwards. I'm not that spiritual. I'm not that intellectual. And I don't have the leisure in my life to wander in the woods for hours on end and talk to myself in this way. Nevertheless, we should remember that Edwards didn't begin that way. Edwards also tells us in his 
journals how that he hated initially the doctrine of God's sovereignty, of the doctrine of election. He hated it. He read it and he abhorred it. He tells us that when he began to ponder his sin, he would look into his heart and he would see this infinite gulf of sin. He could only think the words infinite upon infinite upon infinite. When he thought about, thought about the wickedness and the sin of his heart. In other words, something changed for Jonathan Edwards. So that from hating certain things about God and feeling infinite sin in his heart, something changed and transformed so that as he had leisure and opportunity, he would spend hours in meditating and in talking to himself about God and in prayer to God. So there's hope. There's hope. Wherever you may be in regards to your conversation with yourself, there's hope for real change and transformation. One more comment in answer to this first question. What is sanctified self-talk? It is the most effective daily weapon to use in the battle against what Paul Tripp and others have called gospel amnesia. Now, we all know what amnesia is. Amnesia is when someone loses their memory. Or perhaps they have selective amnesia after a head injury or something, and they lose a portion of their memory. They can remember some events, but not other events. Some of you wives think that perhaps your husband has selective amnesia. Seems to remember some things, but not other things. Well, the truth is, is that, is that all of us sometimes have gospel amnesia. We remember certain things, but we don't remember the gospel. We don't remember God. We don't remember what God has done for us. And notice here what the psalmist says in verse 2. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not, forget not all his benefits. In other words, this is an exercise of memory. It's an exercise of remembrance, of reminding ourselves of something. We are to remember God's benefits, which the psalmist then expounds in terms of God's covenant love and his gracious blessings. In fact, the key word in this psalm is the word, or it's the phrase in English, steadfast love. And it runs like a thread through the psalm. It appears four times in verse four. He crowns you with steadfast love. In verse eight, the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. In verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And then again in verse 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. You notice the dimensional language there? His steadfast love is abounding. It is great. It is from everlasting to everlasting. It reminds me of Paul's words as he surveys the love of God displayed in Christ. And he says how long and how wide and how deep and how uh, how wide. I missed one. How long, how high, how wide, how deep is the love of Christ? The dimensions of God's steadfast covenant love. Well, that's what the psalmist is considering here. He is recounting the benefits of God's grace that spring to us from God's steadfast love. And he's doing that to remind himself. Forget not all his benefits. He's doing it to battle gospel amnesia. Just one brief word of application here. I think considering the psalm in this way, and considering this personal spiritual discipline of sanctified self-talk can be very helpful 
for folks who are kind of burned out with spiritual disciplines. Now, that may not be your case at all, but I've, I've met many people over the years who perhaps grew up in a somewhat legalistic environment. They knew they should read their Bibles and pray, but they found it hard to do so without becoming legalistic about it so that they would use spiritual disciplines as a measuring stick for how well they are doing with God. They might even think of Bible reading and prayer as means for securing a right relationship with God, as if we could be justified by something that we do rather than by what God has done for us in Christ. But you see, the purpose of spiritual disciplines is not to justify us. The purpose of spiritual disciplines is not to make us right with God. The purpose of the spiritual disciplines, such as prayer and reading Scripture and speaking to ourselves, exhorting ourselves with the Gospel, the purpose is to remind us of who God is and what God has done for us. It's, it's not to make God love us. It is to remind ourselves of how much God has already showed, shown His love for us in Christ. So that's what it is. Sanctified self-talk, the discipline of calling our souls to attend to God, regathering all of our thoughts and faculties to God, and exercise in remembrance as we battle gospel amnesia. So second question, how do we do this? What kinds of things should we actually say to ourselves? And perhaps I should first ask, what kinds of things do you say to yourself? I think if we break all of our self-talk down into categories, we, get, we could categorize everything in maybe three categories. We talk to ourselves about ourselves. When you are in this conversation with yourself, you're, you're telling yourself certain things about you, about who you are. We talk to ourselves about our circumstances. We are interpreting and commenting on the things that happen to us in our lives. And we talk to ourselves about the world and reality and God, what is going on in the world, these we might call the bigger picture. And so, for example, when we talk to ourselves about ourselves, this is what many of us do. We speak to ourselves in categories such as intelligence, success, and appearance. I'm dumb. I'm stupid. That was a stupid thing that I did. We say things like that to ourselves. We're commenting on our intelligence or our behavior. Or we think about ourselves in terms of success and failure. I did really well with that. I did really terrible with that. I'm a really great husband. Or I'm a really bad husband. I'm a bad mom. I'm a bad parents. I'm a failure. We think of ourselves in terms of success and failure, or we comment about our own appearance. I'm too skinny. I'm too overweight. I don't like the way I look. I don't like the way my hair looks or whatever. I mean, we all do this. We do these kinds of things all the time. We are assessing ourselves, making judgments about ourselves, and we're doing so with these categories, which I would suggest to you are basically worldly categories. They're not the categories of sin and redemption. They're not the categories of our relationship with God. We speak to ourselves in the categories the world gives us rather than in the categories that Scripture gives us. When we look at our circumstances, we comment on our circumstances, what are we saying? We're saying, that's hard. That's not fair. I shouldn't have to put up with this. Why does somebody else get all the breaks? And again, we're, we're thinking in basically self-centered categories. We're thinking in categories the world gives us. We're not thinking in categories defined by scripture defined by god 
We think about other people. We make comments in our minds about them. We're making value judgments or perhaps more often we are comparing ourselves with them. We are assessing ourselves against them. And then we look at the world and we think about God. What do we say to ourselves about God in the world? Well, sometimes God is not in our thoughts at all. We're just not thinking about God. We're thinking about how messed up the world is. We're thinking about how dark it is, how dangerous it is, how, how things are a mess. Or when we think about God, perhaps we think in very simplistic categories. We might think God is angry. And God is angry with me. Or we might think God is love. And God has no anger towards me whatsoever. Both of those... Are somewhat simplistic. It is true that God is angry. God is angry with the wicked every day, Scripture says. When we speak to ourselves, we have to be honest about our sins before God. It is also true that God is love and He loves us so much that He has dealt with the problem of judgment and of wrath in sending His Son to die for our sins. But some of us, we just think God is love, full stop, and that's as far as we go. And we consider God as something like an overly indulgent grandfather who gives us a pass, who doesn't really care about our sins, who's just there to meet our needs. And so, as you see, we we tend to talk to ourselves in ways that are not deeply biblical, deeply informed by Scripture. And so this psalm, I think, can help us. It can give us new categories. It can give us ways of speaking to ourselves that are biblical and that are true and that reflect the reality of who God is and what He has done and who we are before Him. So so let's consider this for a few moments. What should we say to ourselves about God and then about ourselves and then about our circumstances? First of all, what should we say to ourselves about God? And we've already seen how the psalmist begins by recounting God's benefits, his blessings, forget not his benefits, bless the Lord, O my soul. But then he begins to get very specific. And he he essentially says three things to himself about God. We can categorize everything into three, three basic statements. First of all, he says, God is my redeemer. God is my redeemer. Look at verses three through five. Bless the Lord on my soul and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. As one commentator says, the verbs tell the tale, forgives, heals, redeems, crowns, satisfies. This is the God of redemption. This is God, our redeemer. This is God, our savior. And the psalmist reminds himself of that. Henry lights in that great hymn based on this psalm says, praise my soul, the king of heaven to his feet, your tribute bring ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven evermore. His praises sing. You see, these are the reasons why we praise God, why we bless God. It's because of who God is and what He has done. He has ransomed us. Now, the psalmist is thinking, no doubt, of how God redeemed the children of Israel from bondage and slavery in Egypt. But as believers in Christ, in the era of the new covenant, we know that a greater redemption than that has taken place. 
There is a new exodus where God has sent His Son to be the ransom for our sins and has redeemed us from the bondage and the slavery of sin and death and the curse. He's redeemed us from death and hell. And so we can read these words with full Christian understanding that God, our Redeemer, has saved us through the redeeming work of His Son. Then look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The psalmist here is almost directly quoting from Exodus 34, God's self-disclosure to Moses on the mountain in Exodus 34. Here is the story. Moses is up on the mountain, and God is giving him the law. He is revealing to him the law. He's giving him the pattern for the tabernacle, the whole system of worship that the children of Israel were to follow. Moses is up on the mountain. The children of Israel are down off the mountain. While Moses is receiving the law, the children of Israel are breaking the law. You remember in Exodus 32, they build a golden calf. And they worship this calf. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he sees this. He comes down carrying the tablets. And there they are, committing idolatry. They're breaking the very commandments he's about to give them. And God is ready to wipe them out. He's ready to judge them. And in Exodus 33, Moses takes the place of intercessor. And he pleads for God's mercy and for God's grace. And God stays his anger. And essentially God says, I'll still let you go into the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, I'm not going if you don't go. Lord, please go with us. And then Moses makes this daring request. Perhaps it's the boldest Prayer request in all of Scripture. Lord, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face and live. But this is what I'll do for you, Moses. I'll, I'll pass by. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock on the mountain. I'll put my hand over you. And I'll pass by. And you can hear the proclamation of my name. And then in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passes by and says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The psalmist remembers this and he writes it down as he recalls God, the Redeemer. Verses 9 and 12, uh, 9 through 12 go on in verse 9. He will not always chide. That word chide is an important word. It's a legal term. It means to dispute or to quarrel or to accuse as in a court of law. It's a legal term. And the scripture here says he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Sins carrying the idea of our faults, our failures, iniquities going deeper into our hearts, the very perversity, the distortion of our will, original sin. And the psalmist says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And then verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. Verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, they'll never meet. They will never meet east and west. They never meet. And as far as the east is from the west, 
So far does He remove our transgressions from us, our, our trespasses against His revealed will and His law. This is glorious redemption. And it hints at the greatest problem perhaps in all of Scripture. How can a holy God have fellowship with a sinful people? How can a God who is true to His own holy nature forgive us? Dismiss the charges against us? How is it that God will not always chide? And the great answer, of course, comes in the revelation of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, where God set forward Jesus as a propitiation through His blood to be received by faith in order to declare the righteousness of God who had passed over former sins, to declare His righteousness that God might be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Praise God. Or Romans chapter 8. Who is it who condemns? Who can lay any charge against God's elect? It's Christ who's died. It is God who's, who justifies. Christ has died. He has risen again. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. We have an intercessor. We have a mediator greater than Moses the mediator. We have a mediator in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can with confidence hold on to this truth and we can say to ourselves, God is my Redeemer. He is my gracious Redeemer. God is my Savior. When we're speaking to ourselves and we recall our sins, we should certainly be honest with our sins. We shouldn't lie to ourselves as if we had no sin. We should be honest about our sins. We should name our sins. We should confess our sins. We should repent from our sins. As many of the men were learning this weekend, we should mortify our sins. We should put them to death. And then we should tell ourselves the gospel truth. Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Because they are forgiven. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Do you remind yourself that God is your Savior, that God is your Redeemer, that God forgives your sins? Secondly, we should say to ourselves that God is my Father. God is my Father. Look at verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Any parent knows that the compassion you feel for your children when they are suffering is a unique compassion. I've experienced this a number of times. I have four children. And about five years ago, my oldest son, Stephen, got very sick. He was, he was really ill. Uh, we took him, my wife took him to the pediatrician early in the week. And he said, oh, he's just got a little virus. There's nothing really wrong. Send him home. It wasn't getting better. Several days later, she took him again. They did a blood test. They said, there's nothing wrong. We didn't see anything wrong here. Send him home. And this guy, who is normally a bundle of energy, I mean, I, I sometimes have thought of him like Tigger in the Winnie the Pooh cartoons. That's my son. Very extroverted, outgoing, always talking, always laughing, always joking. And there he was laying on the couch, skin and bones, Looked like a skeleton covered with skin, wasting away before us. We knew something was wrong with this child. And so on a Friday morning, 
my wife and I were talking again. I said, you've got to take him again today. She called. They said, let's put it off till Monday. She said, no, you're seeing him today. They took him in. I went with her that time, and they start examining things. They could see that he's not well. They don't know what's wrong. They even say, we, don't, we just don't know what's wrong with him. And then they decide to do a urine analysis, and they discovered that the sugar was extremely high. They do a blood test. His blood sugar is really high. They asked me a question. Do, do you have diabetes in your family? Well, I'm working on WebMD the whole time, and I come across something called DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. And I'm reading about this. It is the state that someone gets in, their body gets into when the insulin is not being produced by the pancreas, and it's a life-threatening condition. And I was suddenly starting to feel very worried about this boy. And I asked the doctor, I said, does he have DKA? She said, yes. I said, is this life-threatening? She nodded, yes. And then sent us to the hospital. She said, go straight to Memorial Hospital. Don't go home. Don't pack a bag. Go straight to the fourth floor. Don't check in. They'll be waiting for you. That was the longest 20-minute ride that I've ever had. We didn't know at that moment whether he would survive or not. He did, by God's great mercy and grace. But he's now a type 1 diabetic. Type 1 diabetic, that means that he gets at least four shots a day. It means that we check his blood sugar about eight times a day. He's always pricking his fingers, always giving himself shots. He handles it wonderfully. God has given him a lot of grace to handle that. But in those initial days, when I was staying with him in the hospital part of the time, my wife part of the time, we didn't know what the outcome would be, my heart just wrenched with compassion for him. And I tell you, if I could have traded places with my son in that moment, I would have. If God would have let me have the disease and not him, I would have. Because my heart went out to him, compassion of a father for his children. And I want you to know that the compassion of God, your father, is infinitely greater than the greatest compassion that a human parent can feel for their children. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And the greatest revelation of that compassion is in Jesus, the Son of the Father, who teaches us to pray, our Father who is in heaven, who teaches us to bring our needs to our Father who knows our needs before we ask. Jesus who teaches us that our Father has numbered the very hairs of our head. Jesus who always addressed God as Father except one time. When he hung on the cross on Golgotha's hill and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus the Son came to be the sacrifice for our sins so that we, the sons of wrath, the sons of disobedience in hell, so that we could be adopted into the family of God, so that we could receive the spirit of adoption by whom we now cry, Abba, Father. God is our Father. Do you say that to yourself? God is my Father. J.I. Packer says, Father is the Christian name for God. Thirdly, God is my King. God is my Redeemer. God is my Father. God is my King. Look at verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. The focus shifts now to God's transcendent, sovereign dominion on His throne. His extensive, comprehensive reign. His kingdom rules over all. And then the psalmist calls upon the host of heaven 
that live under God's sovereign kingship to bless the Lord. What do we say to ourselves about God? We say, God is my Redeemer. God is my Father. God is my King. He is my Sovereign. He is my Lord. And then we bend the knee. We bow our heads in submission and in adoration, obedience and in worship. That the God who is our Redeemer and our Father and our King has summoned us before Him. This is what we say to ourselves about God. What do you say to yourself about yourself? Look at just a couple of things briefly from the psalm. We should say to ourselves, I am mortal. I am not God. Verses 14 through 16. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Dust and grass, that's what you are. You're dust and grass. There's a whole biblical anthropology assumed here. A theology of man, the doctrine of man. Do you remember that Adam, when he was created in Genesis chapter 2, he is created from the dust of the ground. And Adam, when he sins and comes under the curse of a holy God, you remember what God says to Adam in Genesis 3, verse 19, he says, from dust you were created and to dust you will return. The psalmist remembers this. He remembers who he is in the sight of God. He is a creature. He is dust. He is grass. He is temporary. Life is brief. Life is fragile. Life passes by quickly. Brothers and sisters, we should remind ourselves of these things. We should say to ourselves, I'm dust, I am grass. The world is not about me. I'm not going to live forever. I have to face my mortality. I'm going to die. I must remember my creaturely nature. We should also tell ourselves the truth about who we are in light of our sins. I am a sinner. We've already seen in verses 10, 11, and 12, there are these three different words for our sins. There are sins, iniquities, transgressions. And when we honestly talk to ourselves, we address ourselves in terms of our relationship with God as sinners before Him. But not only sinners. Sinners who are recipients of God's grace. Recipients of God's mercy. Recipients of God's love. And so we turn to ourselves, we honestly address ourselves as who we are, and then we turn right back to God. I love what the old Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, used to write in letters. He wrote these pastoral letters advising people about their souls, and he would say, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Therefore, I'm not going to spend as much time on this point of the sermon. For every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Acknowledge who you are. You're mortal. You're a sinner. But then remind yourself of who God is. The words of Henry Light once more, this time from his great hymn, Jesus, I my cross have taken. Henry Light says, Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise or sin in fear and care. Joy to find in every station something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, 
Canst thou repine? Remember who God is. Remember who you are and tell yourself the truth about it. And then thirdly, finally, tell yourself the truth about your circumstances. Let me just give a couple of examples. What if you're someone who's suffering right now? Maybe you were diagnosed with cancer last month. Maybe you have a parent who's on a deathbed. Maybe you have a child who's been diagnosed with a life-changing illness. Maybe you've suffered in terrible ways in your childhood, abuse or neglect in ways that have scarred you and have marked you. What do you, what do you say to yourself when you have suffered? And especially when you've suffered injustice. Well, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. If you've suffered injustice, you tell yourself the truth about a God who is a just God and who cares for the oppressed. If you're uncertain and anxious and worried about your circumstances, you remind yourself of verse 19 that the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and that this Lord is your Father. And that means, therefore, that nothing can come into your hand, into your life that is not filtered through the fingers of a holy, sovereign God. Do you believe that? That's what carries me through situations that I, such as I described to you, where a, a child is diagnosed with an illness, or a parent, which I've also experienced. So we, we are to say to ourselves the truth about who God is, who we are, who our circumstance, uh, what our circumstances are, all in light of the revelation of God in Scripture. So final question. We're drawing to a close now. How then do we cultivate this discipline? We've seen what it is. We've seen some examples. What to say to ourselves. How do we cultivate this discipline of sanctified self-talk? Let me just give you four very quick steps. Number one, awareness. Take inventory. You actually do need to take inventory. Some of you perhaps have never thought about how you talk to yourself. And you are regularly saying things to yourself without any awareness of it. Maybe you, maybe you are, but maybe not. So listen to yourself. Assess. Ask yourself, what, what kinds of messages am I sending to myself in these ongoing conversations that I have? Here's a practical way you could do that. You could just try writing in a journal every day for a week or so. Just write down the thoughts that you've had through the day. As you recollect them at the end of the day, what are the things you've thought about yourself? You write the truth what you've actually thought, not what you should have thought, and you take inventory of how you're speaking to yourself. Or you might talk about this with your spouse if you're married or your, your children, uh, those of you who are parents. You, you discuss this with family members because oftentimes self-talk comes out in our conversations with others. So awareness, that's first. Secondly, repentance. Some of us need to do an about-face we need to do a 180-degree turn. We've got, we've got to change things. We've got to change the way we talk to ourselves. Listen, Christian, it is a sin to tell yourself a lie. It's a sin. It is a sin to tell yourself lies about God, lies about yourself, lies about your world, about your circumstances. It's a sin to always be degrading yourselves in unbiblical unhelpful, unhealthy ways. It's also a sin to ignore your sins as if they were not there. There's got to be this balance where we are not pouring contempt on ourselves for our appearance or our intelligence or 
the way other people look at us or whatever, but where we are also honestly speaking to ourselves about both our sin and God's gracious provision for sin in Christ. So repent. Find out where your self-talk is unhealthy and turn from it. Number three, there's got to be intentionality. That is, we have to be deliberate in the kinds of things we say to ourselves. Now, almost everything I've shared with you, I owe to this little germ of inspiration that I got from the late David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's the greatest preacher in the 20th century, in my opinion. Great pastor in England during the war years and after in London. And uh, Lloyd-Jones wrote a wonderful book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure, and he addresses this. And this is, this is worth reading to you. This is what Lloyd-Jones said. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? Psalm 42. You must turn on yourself, exhort yourself, say to yourself, hope thou in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. That's the discipline. And it takes intentionality. You will not do this unless you plan to do this. You will not do this unless you cultivate the practice. You will not do this unless you, fourthly, get good input. There's got to be input. We all know the phrase, garbage in, garbage out. You know how Jesus said, out of the good treasure of a person's heart, he speaks forth good things. And out of the evil treasure of his heart, he brings forth evil things. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks an old friend of mine used to say, the tongue is the dipstick of the heart. You know what a dipstick is? It's how you check the oil in your car. You see what the levels are. You see what's inside. You can see whether it's dirty or not. The tongue is the dipstick of the heart. What you say to others and what you say to yourself reveals what's inside. And you can't change your self-talk unless you change your heart. You can't change your self-talk unless you change what's in there. And so input, that's crucial. Remember what the psalmist said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So be in your Bibles, be in this psalm, be in Scripture, hear the word preached as I know you do week after week from your faithful pastor and start speaking to yourselves the truth about who God is and what he has done. Let me conclude in this way. There was a great theologian, a very famous theologian, who visited Rockefeller Chapel on the campus of the University of Chicago after a lecture tour in 1962. There was a question and answer time after the chapel. And a student asked this renowned theologian if he could summarize his whole life's work in theology in a single sentence. And the theologian paused for a moment and then he said, yes, I can. In the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you don't know where to start with self-talk, that's not a bad place. 
The message of Scripture is that God loved the world so much that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Therefore, brother and sister, tell yourself the truth. Tell yourself the truth about God. God, your Savior, your Redeemer, your Father, your King. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how we thank You for your marvelous, amazing grace. It astounds us that you are a God who is so gracious. That in the face of our sin and our rebellion and our iniquity. You have withheld your anger from us. That you have taken judgment upon yourself. By sending your son. By pouring your wrath upon your son. That you have forgiven us our sins, that you have separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that you have this great compassion towards us as a father towards his children. We give you thanks for it. We give you praise for it. In this morning, even in this moment, we confess that we have often spoken untruths to ourselves. We have murmured and complained in our hearts. We have spoken lies about you and your character. We have thought wrongly about ourselves and about others and about the world, and we repent this morning. We turn from that. We see that the health of our soul is found in the truth of knowing who you are and in reminding ourselves of who you are, in forgetting not your benefits. So give us grace and by your Spirit. Empower us and help us. Put into practice this crucial discipline of sanctified self-talk. And may we do it for the praise of your glorious name. Amen.